1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. And it says this, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Verse 9, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, why we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Let's uh, join me as we pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for the privilege of uh, being a servant of yours. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, take the word of God today, that you would uh, encourage us through it, that you would inspire us, that you would uh, uh, use it, Father, to challenge us, to strengthen us, and to move us uh, in a direction that you want us to go. Lord, I pray that you would bless uh, the service, bless uh, the speaking, bless your word, for your name's sake and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> There's an excellent book that came out several years ago by Gordon MacDonald called Restoring Your Spiritual Passion. And uh, Gordon MacDonald, he talks about or identifies five different types of people that you'll encounter in life. And it's, his, it's sort of his take on, on people and what people are like. And he says that he's identified five different types of people. And uh, the first one is you'll identify very resourceful people. You come across people who are very resourceful. These are people who stimulate us and challenge us. They're people who ignite our passion. Many of these people are like our mentors. Uh, they're very, very important people. They're very resourceful people in our lives. People that you want to be around. People that you want to hang around. People that you want to, to uh, just invest time with. There's a second type of person that he calls very important people. Now, these are people who share our ministry. They're often our ministry partners. They can be national workers. They can be colleagues. They can be uh, good friends. They can be supporters. They're part of our ministry. They're, part, they're our associates. These are people who share our vision, who share our passion. They're very uh, important people. And then he identifies a third class, very trainable people. 
very trainable people. These are people who have great potential for ministry. Uh, we can train these people. They're trainable. And uh, these are people who catch our passion. They catch our passion. And then he identifies a fourth class. And these are very nice people. And uh, that's about all they are. They're very, very nice people. Uh, you're laughing. I think some of you have read the book, perhaps. But they're nice people, just that. They, they add little to our ministry. Uh, they do very little ministry themselves. They're just very nice people. These are people who really enjoy our passion. They like to be around us because, because of the passion that we have, but they really don't add to it. And uh, they really don't do a lot of ministry themselves. Very nice people. I try I like nice people, but nice people uh, are nice people. And then there's a fifth class of people he calls very draining people. These are the VDPs. These are people you want to stay away from. These are people who consume most of our time. And they consume most of our time and energy. They're takers. They're seldom producers. These are people who sap us of our passion. Very draining people. I call them VDPs. And you run across these different types of people. And all these people have influence. And really what this message is about today is how do we influence people for the kingdom of God? And influence is something that we all have. And really, it's, this message is really geared towards, towards leaders. And we're all leaders in one sense of the word. Every one of us here is an influencer. And the question isn't if you're an influencer, it's what kind and how much is really the issue. And uh, so when we talk about influencing people, it's, it's a really key concept. And, and it's a very broad concept. I was uh, in the States in September. I had to take my son to, uh, to drop him off at college, at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And so I was there, and they had a really good week. They had a, a whole week set aside for, uh, for students and parents, uh, a parent-student orientation week. So I thought I'd take advantage of it and, and go and uh, get to check out my son, see how he's reacting, whether he's going to make it or not. I barely saw them the whole week. Uh, they had some things that we did together, but it was, it was really great. And they, one of the things they did during that week was they had some of the profs give um, uh, sort of like uh, introductions to the courses that they're going to be taking. And you had a chance to go and, and, and listen to some of these different topics. And so I, you know, I had a whole week there, and I had some time. And so I took advantage, and I went to this one prof, uh, who was a philosophy teacher. And it was very interesting. And she said, she said this, that there was the, the most influential people for the, she's been teaching at Calvin, I think, for over 10, 15 years. The, the, the most influential people in your kid's life. She did a survey in the classroom and said, who are the most, who are the people that you think of when you think of influence? And people were saying, you know, Michael Jackson, uh, you know, the rock and roll singers, actors, movie stars. And through her research, and she's written a book on this, and it's all documented. Through her research, she identified the most important people, the people that have the most influence in the lives of kids. You know who they are? The top one, the top one was grandparents. The second was parents. 
The third was teachers. And the fourth were coaches. Those are the people that have the most influence in the lives of your kids. It's fascinating. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not the movie stars. It's not Hollywood. Yeah, they, 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 they're things that they idolize, but that's not what drives them. That's not where they get their, their influence from. They get their influence mostly from parents, grandparents, family, uh, coaches, teachers, that sort of thing. And so let me ask you the question, who are the people that have had the most influence in your life? Who are the people that have had the most influence in your life? Take, take a few minutes and just think about that. And what are some of the things that those people did that they brought into your life to influence you? You know, it might have been uh, maybe a teacher. It might have been a pastor or a youth pastor. It might have been a coach. It might have been a family member, a grandparent or a parent or someone like that. Who, who are the people, if you stop to think, who are the people that really had an influence in your life, that made an impact in your life, that caused your life to go in a certain direction? Who are those people? And then take a moment to think about uh, who, who these people are and what they've done for you. Now think about this. Take a moment just to imagine this. Wouldn't it be great if you and I could have that same kind of influence in the lives of other people? Wouldn't it be great if you and I could be the type of people that really encourage and really inspire other people to be everything that God wants them to be? And the the truth of the matter is, is is that you already have that. You see, the question, when it comes to influence and influencing people for God, it's not a question of if. It's a question of what kind and how much. What kind and and how much. And uh, if your life connects with people in any way, and I'm sure it does, then you are an influencer. And some of us have a very wide circle of influence. I mean, you influence hundreds, maybe thousands of people. I'm one of those one-talent guys. I have a small circle of people that I work with that I influence, or I try to influence. Some of us have a very wide circle. Some of us have a very small circle. But remember, that's not important. It's not important how much. God's given you certain gifts. He's given you certain talents. And he's given it according to your ability. So it doesn't matter if somebody has a wide circle, somebody has a small circle. The question is, what are you doing with the circle? What are you doing with your influence? Who are you influencing today? When I was uh, at Chiang Mai Theological Seminary um, uh, directing the school there, we had a guy on staff, uh, many of you would know him, Dr. Henry Bridenthal. Henry is an old codger. He's been on the mission field since I was six. He's been here a long time. And uh, Henry would often come up to me and he said, and I was his boss at the time, and he'd say, Mike, who are you influencing? He was all about influencing people. Who are you influencing? And so I asked you the question, who are you influencing? Let me, uh, let me just be a little bit vulnerable and transparent this morning. And um, I grew up outside of the city of Boston, right on the outskirts of Boston. I grew up in a large Italian family, um, lots of brothers and sisters. And uh, my mother was born in Italy. And all my aunts and uncles were born in Italy. 
and uh, they immigrated over to New England back um, on Ellis Island, my grandfather. And so I grew up in this large Italian family, and, and it, was a great, it was a great family. And something happened when I turned eight years old. Uh, my dad was uh, quite abusive, and he was diagnosed as being a manic depressant, which today we call it bipolar. He had his highs and he had his lows. And it got so bad growing up in my family that um, I was afraid to go home. And I got into sports. And I stayed at school. I played sports all year, all day. And I never went home. I was too afraid to go home. Because I guess back then, I didn't realize it, but, but you could probably say that I was abused emotionally. I was certainly abused physically. And, you know, over the years, uh, the family just, just split up. And they went every which direction. I moved out of the house when I was 16. When I was 16 years old, I moved out of the house because I couldn't, I couldn't live there anymore. And uh, it was hard. It was really hard. But God brought somebody into my life, and I wasn't a believer then. But God brought somebody into my life that made a huge difference in my life. His name was PJ. PJ was my basketball coach. He was also my math teacher. He was someone who, who uh, for some reason, I have no idea why, he just took an interest in me. He saw something in me, and he just befriended me as a friend. But he was, he was my teacher. He was my coach. He was a mentor. He was somebody I really looked up to. And when I moved out of the house, when he heard I was moving out, he said, why don't you come and, and live with us? He was living with two other guys. They were all single. None of them were married. They were, just, they were young. He was, he was in his early 20s, just out of college, uh, teaching at Keith Tech Vocational School in uh, Framingham, Massachusetts, where I grew up. And uh, he said, come live with me. So I did. I didn't have any money. I couldn't pay him anything. I couldn't pay rent. couldn't do anything. I just did lots of dishes. Worked around the house. You know? I was there. I was, I was there made. Okay? You know what that's all about, right? And, uh, but PJ, I can honestly say that I'm the person I am today because of PJ. Because BJ, PJ became someone who believed in me. He was someone who challenged me. He's someone who inspired me. He was someone who encouraged me. He's someone who never gave up on me. He's someone who poured his life into me. And you know what? It made all the difference in the world. And I, I don't know where I would be today if it wasn't for PJ. He made a difference in my life. And that's what the book of Thessalonians is all about. When Paul wrote the book of Thessalonians, it's actually one of Paul's oldest books. Uh, if you date Galatians, I, date, I give Galatians an early date. Uh, Thessalonians was probably written in 51 A.D., 51, 52. It's probably Paul's second book that he wrote, either his first or his second book. And so it was quite an early book, quite an early writing. And um, Paul, when he went to uh, Thessalonic, Thessalonica, he, uh, he was encouraging the, the Christians there. He wrote it from Corinth. And the church in Thessalonica was a fairly new church. It was a new 
group of Christians that were just growing in their faith. They were undergoing some severe persecution. As a matter of fact, Paul, we read last week from from, uh, chapter 17 in Acts, Athens, Paul had left Philippi because of persecution, went to Berea, uh, went to uh, Thessalonians, at Thessalonica, left there because of persecution, went to Berea, left there because of persecution, then came to Athens. And so Paul was very familiar with, with persecution. And he wrote some very basic instructions to these new believers on how to live the Christian life. And, uh, and basically what he's saying in the book of Thessalonians, if I could just sum it up real quickly, he's saying, hang in there. Just hang in there. Don't give up. Hang in. Be tough until the Lord comes back. As a matter of fact, in the, the uh, end of every chapter in this book, he mentions the second coming of Christ. And we saw a couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, the talents and the master coming back. And, and we're going to have to give an account of everything that we've done. And then last week, we looked at the judgment that God's, in times past, overlooked our ignorance, but now in these last days, he's not going to overlook our ignorance anymore. And there's going to be a judgment. And here he talks again about the second coming of Christ. In every chapter of this book, he mentions the second coming, right at the very end. And so Paul is writing to them saying, don't give up, hang in there, stay tough. And over in chapter 1, in verse 6, he says this. He says the most amazing statement. He says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example, an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And so Paul looks at the Thessalonians and he says, he says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And he says, now follow their example. And they became an example for all of the churches in Judea and Achaia at that time. And these are fairly new Christians. And so Paul, he looks at that and he's highlighting, I believe, a very crucial principle that we need to understand. And and it's this. Living the Christian life, living the Christian life consists of, to a certain extent, following the example of other people. You know how you learn to live the Christian life? You learn it by following the example of other people. Uh, That's why Paul said, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, Therefore I urge you to imitate me. And in 1 Corinthians 11.1, he says, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. In Hebrews 13.7, he says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. And so you see, there's a relational aspect to the Christian life. There's a relational aspect to living the Christian life. It's a key component. You learn how to be like Jesus. You learn how to live like Jesus by by being with people who are examples of that. Um, Lasting influence. And so Paul goes into this. And so my question is, how how do we influence people for God? How do we do it? And, uh, I want you to see several characteristics that I see in the Apostle Paul in this chapter that I think we need to develop in our own lives if we're really serious about influencing people for God and really making an impact in people's lives. And the first thing is this. If you want to be a person of deep influence, 
You have to be willing to pay the price. You have to be willing to pay the price. Look what he says in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Now Paul's referring to Acts chapter 16 when he was in Philippi. And there he was, he was preaching the gospel. And uh, he was there with Silas preaching in Philippi and the crowd turned against him. And they dragged these two preachers to the city magistrate. The city magistrate ordered that they be stripped and beaten and thrown in jail. It's a great story. And, of course, you, you know about the story in Acts, Acts chapter 16 where the angel comes at night. They're singing praises to God. The angel comes at night and sets them free, and off they go. And then he goes on from there. He goes on to Thessalon- uh, Thessalonica, and he's, he's, he's persecuted there. He goes to Berea. He's persecuted there. He goes to Athens. He's persecuted there. Everywhere Paul went, he suffered for the gospel. It's amazing. It's a reoccurring theme in his, in his life. Second Corinthians is perhaps the most intimate uh, epistle that Paul wrote, where he really lets down his hair and shares from his heart. You see that, you see what he had to endure. He endured beatings, imprisonment, hard work, sleepless nights, hunger, coldness, shipwrecks, abandonment, persecution, danger. That was his life. That was the price that he paid in order to influence people for the gospel. He paid a huge price. And he did it everywhere he went. Now, I can almost guarantee you that you and I won't have to pay that kind of price. I can almost guarantee you that uh, we won't have to pay a price to that extent. But I can guarantee you with absolute certainty that if you're serious about investing in the lives of people, that you will pay a price. If you're serious about investing in lives and people, you'll pay a price. You'll have to sacrifice. And you may, you may not have to endure beatings. You may not have to endure shipwrecks. But you will endure opposition. You will endure criticism. You will be, you'll, you'll have to take your knocks. Uh, circumstances at times will turn against you and... You know what I find is that when things like that happen, when circumstances turn against you, that's when your influence is at its peak. Because people need to see that in your life. They need to see that when things get tough, that you press on, that you're not quitting, that you're going on. They need to see that, that when things get tough, you make a difference. They need to see the quality and the quantity of your commitment. They really do. And that's when your influence is at its peak. When circumstances seem to be turning against you and uh, you, have to, you have to endure some hardship, that's when you have the most influence in life, in ministry. And so the first thing that Paul says is that if you want to be a person of deep influence, listen, you've got to be willing to pay the price. And there is a price to be paid. The second characteristic I see of Paul in this, in, this, in this chapter is this. If you want to be a person of deep influence, you've got to be willing not only to pay the price, but you've got to be willing to please God first. Please God first. Verse 4. He says this in verse 4. 
But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Now, uh, you and I both know that, um, you know, are we, are we seeking to please man or seeking to please God? Am I seeking the approval of men or am I seeking the approval of God? Um, in Galatians 1, verse 10, he says this, And now, am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Am I trying to please men? If I, will, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see, the big difference is that pleasing people and influencing people is huge. There's a big difference between pleasing people and influencing people. You can't please all the people all the time. You know that. You can't even please some of the people all the time. You just can't do it. Uh, and the more you try, the less influence you have. And I often find that uh, Christian leaders and parents and employers often resort to this kind of tactic. I find myself doing it as a leader, as a parent. You want people to like you. You have an innate desire for people to like you. And so you compromise your convictions, you compromise your standards in order for people to like you. And I see that going on in Christian circles all the time among leaders, among parents, among employers and employees. Uh, you know, for instance, parents will want their kids to like them. And so they'll often compromise their standards and their convictions in order that their kids might like them. And when you start to do that, you know what happens? You lose your influence. You lose your ability to influence somebody. And a matter of fact, it will work against you. And almost on a daily basis in my house, not a daily basis, let me say a weekly basis in my house, when one of our kids does something that, that is inappropriate or whatever, whatever behavior it might be, uh, and we punish them, send them to their room or ground them or whatever it is, whatever, whatever it requires, almost on a weekly basis, one of them will go storming out of the room saying, I hate you. You're the worst parent in the world. And, uh, you know, and then they'll get over it and they'll come back downstairs and say, I'm sorry, I don't hate you, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, you know, my job as a parent, I mean, I look at my kids and I tell them, you know, I don't care if you like me, all right? My job is not for you to like me. I don't try to get my kids to like me. I love my kids, and they love me. But my job as a parent is not to get my kids to like me. My job as a parent is to be a parent and to influence them to godliness. And employees do it as well. And they compromise their standards and their convictions in order to get their employees to like them. And when you do that, you lose your influence. Leaders do it among their staff. And, it, and it's a vicious cycle. And it goes on all the time. And there's nothing wrong with wanting people to like you. But it's when you compromise your standards and your convictions that it begins to work against you. A person of influence isn't afraid to lead people in the direction they need to go, even when they don't particularly want to go in that direction. Tom Landry, the uh, uh, former coach of the Dallas Cowboys, he's got a good quote. 
Tom Landry said this, The job of a coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to achieve what they've always wanted to be. I like that. The job of a coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to achieve what they've always wanted to be. Now, I'm not saying that a person of influence isn't well-liked, because usually they are. Usually people who influence other people are well-liked. But they know where to draw the line when it comes to that influence. Uh, They won't sacrifice influence for popularity. And um, you know the good news is, is that you may not be able to please all the people all the time, but you can please God all the time. You can always please God all the time. By choosing not to be, not, by choosing not to take the popular way, but take the way that's going to please God. And sometimes that's difficult. Sometimes it's difficult. And you'll be criticized. And you'll be shunned. You'll be marginalized. You'll people, people will be disgruntled with you. But you know what I find is that when we take the line, when we hold the line, in order to influence people, those disgruntled people often come around and they appreciate you more for your strength than for your weakness. And so if you want to influence people, if you're really serious about influencing people for God, first of all, you've got to be willing to pay the price. Secondly, you've got to be willing to please God and not choose the popularity. Thirdly, what I see a characteristic of Paul in this chapter is this. A person of deep influence is willing to share his or her life with other people. A person of deep influence is willing to share his or her life with other people. Verse 8, it says this. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul here is saying that you know, we loved you so much that we were delighted not only to share the gospel with you, but our own lives. Our own lives. If you're really serious about influencing people for the kingdom, you've got to be willing to wear your heart on your sleeve. And, you know, that's, that's a scary thing. Because we're too afraid that uh, we're going to get rejected. Or we're too afraid that people are going to turn on us. Or we're too afraid that... Um, you know, we try to keep our emotional distance in order not to get hurt. It's a, it's, it's a protection. It's a, it's a defensive mechanism that we put up around us. And we're not willing to be real with people. We're not willing to let our hair down. We're not willing to wear our heart on our sleeve and let people get close enough to us where they can see that, hey, we're human. We make mistakes. We have cracks. We're flawed. But instead, we keep an emotional distance. That's not what Paul did. That wasn't Paul's method of ministry. Paul was willing to share his life. And he got right next to them and invested his time and his energy in people. If you want to have influence in the lives of others, you have to invest in their life. Uh, You cannot maintain You cannot maintain an emotional barrier between you and those you want to influence. It doesn't work. You can't do it. 
That's why Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1.6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You pour your life into people so that they can see your example, so that they can learn to do what you, what you did for them. You, you pour your life into people so that you can get close enough to them where they can see that you're real, that you're real, that you have flaws, that you have cracks, that you're not perfect, that you haven't, you're not the super Christian who has it all together. There's too many people in the church that wear masks and have these facades up, and they're not real. And Paul is saying here that if you want to influence people, you've got to be real. You've got to get next to people. You've got to be willing to share your life with people. Pour your life into people. And he goes on and he says in verse 7, he says, he says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And then he talks about it in verse 11, and a father, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. What Paul's saying is we loved you like parents. What, what mother would not sacrifice anything that she had, everything that she had for her own child? They would sacrifice everything for their children. You would sacrifice everything for your kids. And Paul's saying the same thing here. He's saying, if you want to be a person of influence, you've got to be willing to sacrifice like a mother sacrifices for its child, like a father sacrifices for its son, like parents sacrifice for their family. Paul's saying that we need that same kind of commitment to have with others, a commitment that says, I will give to you I will pour my life into you. I will sacrifice. I will pay the price. Not so that you'll be like me, but so that you'll become everything that God wants you to be in your life. But it will never happen. It will never happen unless you're willing to pay the price. Unless you're willing to please God and not take the popular route. Unless you're willing to pour your life into people and let them see that you are human that you're real, and take the mask off. I want to close with an illustration and then just wrap this up real quick. Um, a little over a year ago, you know, I've been talking about investing in people. I've been talking about investing in the kingdom. I've been talking about taking risks, because it is risky when you invest. And uh, a little over a year ago, we took someone into our home named... Urupon, Gutiarat. He was a boy at Agape, at the Agape home where my wife works. And we, uh, through, uh, through a lot of prayer and talking, we decided to adopt a little Thai boy who happens to be HIV. And um, it was a huge risk. It was a huge risk. And I've I, I got to tell you that it's probably the most difficult thing I've ever done in my entire life is to take this little boy into our home. It's been really hard. It was a huge risk because I knew when taking this boy into our home, it was going to change the whole, the whole, uh, what do I want to say, the whole uh, character of our family. And... We knew going into it, it was risky. 
And yet, um, I can honestly say that, you know, the reason why we did it is because I don't think there's any greater gift you can give to somebody than to give them a family. And so we took Boo into our home. And, uh, yeah, it hasn't been easy, but it's been good. And we've seen this little guy transform before our eyes and become everything that God wants him to be. He's in a process, and we're in a process. He's learning from us, we're learning from him. But it's been amazing to see what's gone on in this kid's life in just a little over a year. He came, he had, has all sorts of issues. I mean, we all have our issues, right? But he had some uh, real attachment issues and things like that. And, uh, you know, just watching this boy change. Uh, because, because, you know, we believe that God's given to us uh, some talents. And that we need to invest our talents. And we raised four kids. Ellen came to me a couple of years ago, started giving me the idea of adopting a boy. She wanted to adopt this little boy. I said, no way. You know, I've raised four kids. I'm done. I- I've had it. Uh, I'm done. And uh, we don't have the money. I mean, I thought of every excuse in the book. And it wasn't, and this went on for a couple of years that we were talking about this. And it came to the point where, where uh, I really couldn't think of a reason why we shouldn't do it. Other than the fact that it was an opportunity to invest in someone's life that they might become something that they need to be. It just came right down to that. I'm not saying that you should all go out and adopt children. What I'm saying is that there's no greater thing you can do with your life than invest it in the kingdom of God. And that's investing your life. It's investing time in the gospel. It's investing your energy in people. And people, when it comes to ministry... You know this as well as I do. The greatest blessing you have in ministry is people. And the greatest heartbreak you'll have is people. They will break your heart. But your greatest rewards, your greatest rewards will be people. People that you'll be standing with on the other side. And so, you want to be serious about investing in the kingdom of God? Investing in people of the kingdom? You've got to be willing to pay the price. Are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing to pay the price that must be paid? Are you willing to choose influence over popularity? Are you willing to pour your life into others without fear and without reservation so that your influence will make a difference for years to come? And people will look back and they'll say, I am what I am today because of that guy because of that woman, because of that person, because of that pastor, because of that youth pastor, because of that employer. I am what I am today because somebody believed in me, somebody challenged me, somebody inspired me, somebody encouraged me, somebody never gave up on me. They were willing to go the distance. Are you willing to do that? It's a risk. It's a huge risk but it's one 
that she'll never regret. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul and how he invested in people. Despite the persecution, despite the suffering, despite having to choose the unpopular route, uh, he still poured his life into people like a mother, like a father. Lord, I pray that you would be gracious to us, that you would help us uh, to be patient with people, to be willing to pay the price, to be willing to pour our lives into people, to be willing to let people see us as we really are, to take the masks off and to be real with people. Father, thank you for Paul his life, his ministry. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these dear people who sit here today. And I pray that you would pour out your blessing upon them. Lord, bring opportunities into our lives where we can invest in people. For your glory and for your kingdom, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Mike.